You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. chapter 5, verses 21 through 43 today. I was a 20-year-old supervisor at the Palmer Gulch Resort. Any of you have been there before? It was my summer job, and I was the, the supervisor on duty this one particular evening, and, uh, and things just went crazy. We had a, a mom come in, her kid was screaming, probably a five-year-old kid, he had gotten a piece of wood jammed in his eye, and we were trying to figure out a way to sort of calm this kid down and then try to address that. So we got him, we got some people kind of around the uh, uh, first aid kit. And then uh, right behind them came another older man. He was a work camper. Uh, it's a retired couple in their 80s that would work in the, like the fudge and candy shop. And uh, this was just sort of their retirement was to, to work and enjoy campgrounds and move around. And he's right there and he's got a, a, a pale look on his face. He says, my, my wife has fallen, she's not responsive, I can't. And so, so immediately get on the radio with the screaming kid get a staff person up there, and it turns out she had a heart attack. And so we had an air, we had to call 911, so 911, radio, screaming kid, and then this panicked husband, and then right behind them came another family that uh, their, their campsite had been robbed and totally ransacked and stolen. And so trying to deal with all of these things at the same time was just, there was this sense of uh, tremendous urgency, one of the, more, the most chaotic nights of my life, as uh, we're trying to make these 911 calls, we're trying to radio, we're trying to care for this woman, and this child and this family that had all of their stuff ransacked. And uh, in that moment, it became pretty clear that I could not actually help any of them. I did not have any power or ability in and of myself to change any of their circumstances. The best I could do was call for help in all of these situations. So I don't know if you can think of a time in your life when you experience just desperate urgency, uh, just a need, a desperate, urgent need uh, for something to change, something to happen right now where life and death is on the line. That's exactly the situation we have in Mark chapter 5. We have an account of two overlapping, desperate, and urgent situations that Jesus encounters. And unlike me, he's able to do something about it. He is the one you go to for help. And so let's look at Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Uh, I'm sorry, Mark 5, chapter 20, verse 21 through verse 43. We're going to break our time up together in four parts. Uh, verses 21 through 24, a father's dire request of Jesus. And then in verses 25 through 28, a woman's desperate reach out to Jesus. And then in verses 29 through 34, a daughter's restoration by faith in Jesus. And in verses 35 through 43, a daughter's rising by the word of Jesus. So that's what we're going to go through today. And I just want you to have that sense of desperate urgency. This is immediate emergency. Uh, this is beyond the ability of anyone to handle, and people are coming to Jesus. And so look at verses 21 through 24. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat from to the other side, this was after his encounter with the demon-possessed man, he's coming back across the lake. Now the last that they had seen of him before this trip was that he had been teaching to them about the kingdom. And so this crowd seems to still be anticipating that Jesus is there. Jesus is coming back. They see him coming, and they can't wait for him to resume his ministry among them. And a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. So again, we've got this anticipated crowd. 
Um, Jesus had left them. A wild storm had happened. He went and healed uh, or delivered a man of these demons. Now they're coming back across the lake. These people are just waiting. And, uh, and at the front of the line of this anticipation is a ruler of the synagogue. He's the arch synagogue leader. Um, and this is interesting because we're starting to see that the leadership of the synagogue is actually starting to oppose Jesus, starting to question Jesus. And this is the guy that's like in charge of the synagogue. And he has reached a place of such desperation over the, the condition of his daughter that he is taking a huge risk here. He's going to Jesus. He's out of options. Nothing else can save this girl. She's got minutes left and his precious little daughter, and he is pulling out all the stops. At this point, it doesn't matter what the other religious leaders think of him. In this moment of urgency, he goes to the one person who he thinks can do something about it, which is Jesus. And this is risky, because there has been opposition to Jesus. There's growing opposition to Jesus, and he's now flipping sides. From the establishment, the religious establishment, he's coming and he's begging Jesus. What an undignified thing uh, for this man to do. Um, to come before this traveling itinerant minister who we aren't sure what to make of yet, and uh, actually his people are resisting to, this ex to some extent, and to come and to bow down and beg this man to come touch his daughter. And I think what we see here is that his crisis revealed what he really believed, right? Nothing else mattered to him at this point. And I don't know if you've been in a situation where you've been in a crisis and you were kind of faced with what was really true. What did you really believe? They say that there's no atheists in voxels, that when you're facing war, <laughs> no one is debating the existence of God. We're crying out, begging that he would help us, right? And that's kind of the sense here, is that in his desperation, we find out that this man actually does find Jesus compelling. He does think that maybe Jesus can do something about it, and it's worth a shot. His little precious girl, it's worth it to him in this crisis to give it a shot, to express some faith in Jesus. Maybe Jesus can come and help me. Sometimes it takes a crisis for us to get clarity enough to go, what will we do? We saw that when we went through the series in Job. It was that Satan wanted God to test Job so that we could see what Job was really made of. Does he really follow you for you? What's really in him? And this man, in the desperation of his daughter dying, we find that actually he does find Jesus compelling. He does believe in him and he's willing to undignify himself. He's willing to beg. He's willing to kind of risk his standing in the synagogue by coming to Jesus. So in the midst of this, so Jesus is starting to go. It seems like Jesus responds favorably to this man's request, this man's desire for Jesus to come and touch his daughter. And the crowd is just, it's just chaos as he's moving along. And then we get here in verses 25 to 28, a woman's desperate reach to Jesus. So look at verse 25, okay? So this entourage is moving along. This is desperate. This is urgent. We've got to get there before this little girl dies. Verse 25, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather had grown worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Now, I don't know if you remember when we started the Mark series that we talked about, Mark loves to do this literary uh, technique called a Markan sandwich where he starts a story, then interrupts it, and then resumes the story. And so this is sort of the meat in the sandwich. The story of this woman is that he's, he's, Jesus is going to go heal this, this girl, but there's this interruption, there's this, this center. And, and Mark does that uh, to provide a, like a spiritual point. He, he layers these stories together. He wraps them. He does this sandwich to sort of emphasize. And we're going to see that the emphasis here is on faith, that Jesus loves to reward faith. So this woman... She is unclean, 
she's had a discharge of blood for 12 years. This is probably some sort of menstrual irregularity for 12 years. Who knows what has happened to her, this poor woman? Who knows if she's been assaulted, if there's been a miscarriage, if there's some sort of disease, if there's something that she has done, or if there's something that has been done to her. But this tragic woman who has been an outcast, according to Leviticus 15, she would be unable to worship or even to be touched by anyone else, or they would become clean. And this has been her life for 12 years. Ceremonially unclean, unpart of be, uh, un, unable to be part of the worshiping community, untouched, distanced. And that's part of why she sees this crowd as an opportunity. She's heard the reports of Jesus that maybe if I could just get into contact with him, maybe he's my answer here. I have spent everything. I have tried everything. Maybe. Maybe this healer, maybe this traveling healer really would have the power. But she doesn't have the boldness to go to him and just request. That would be totally inappropriate for a holy man to be in front of such an unclean outcast of a woman. He, she would make him unclean. But this crowd provides an opportunity for her to maybe sneak in through the crowd when nobody's noticing. Maybe I could just touch the hem of his garment, and then maybe that would be enough. And so she decides to give it a shot. So just, just think of what this woman has been through. Just put yourself in her shoes, the desperation. This disease has ravaged her, but also the cures that she sought have ravaged her. It says that, right? She suffered much under many physicians. The disease itself, the issue itself was bad enough, but what has made it worse is that everyone that she has sought to help her has just made it worse, and she suffered much under many physicians. Probably many legitimate physicians that really were trying to help her and just Medicine being what it is, and sometimes you try things and they don't work, they've made things worse. And perhaps over the course of 12 years, she got, got connected with some people who like do snake oil tricks, right? That had maybe just taken advantage of her, sold her a bill of goods, maybe taken advantage of her, maybe used her. Almost like TV evangelists, right? Who manipulate people to get their money, to maybe use their infirmity against them, and that's where she's at. She's destitute, spending all that she has, using every resource she had to try to find a solution, and everything just is worse and worse and worse. She's at a point of total desperation. Just reminds me a little bit of Danielle, our friend, who is fighting cancer and running out of options, and just every, everything you can think of, every remedy we can try, every place we can go. And so I, I think of this, this woman, she, this is where she's at. Maybe the testimony she's heard of Jesus. Maybe, maybe there would be enough power in this man to give her a shot. And so she sneaks through the crowd and she just wants to touch the hem of his garment. And again, she's probably thinking, if I sneak in and touch Jesus and get out, nobody knows. I don't have to share my story. I don't have to show that I'm a bloody mess. No one will think Jesus is unclean because how could he be unclean if he didn't even know he was touched by someone who was unclean? What if she rejects? What if he rejects me? Um, she doesn't want to be exposed. She doesn't want to be shamed. She doesn't want to bring exposure or shame to Jesus. And so this is the best that she has to offer. And I think we could stop here and just go, why is it that God allows bad things to happen to good people? This seems like a sweet woman. Why would she be afflicted this way? And the answer is, I don't know. But perhaps one of the reasons that this woman has been allowed to suffer in this way is that is to just show how fragile the human race is. Like 
how fragile human reality is apart from God. That when Adam and Eve re rebel against God in the garden, they put the world under a curse. And we feel that curse through diseases, right. through storms, through demons. We see all of this happening. And so maybe, maybe this here is to show us how fragile the human race really is, how miserable the state of the world is when a world is alienated from its creator. Maybe it's to reveal that we cannot save ourselves as much as we might think we can. We could try to throw money at our problems. We could try to throw doctors at We could try to throw science at our problems. And in the end, we are very fragile people. We're very fragile people, and we have a condition that only God himself can, can deal with. And maybe it is to create a longing for a kingdom of heaven where everything is made right. Maybe God allows some suffering to some extent so that he might make us long for heaven, for the restoration of all things. To make us actually seek out Jesus as the only one who can save us. Maybe one of the reasons that this poor woman suffers for 12 years is so that you and I could read her story and we would be able to come to the same Jesus that she comes to. Maybe God had a plan to preserve her story in history so that her suffering might be a platform by which the glory of Jesus would be revealed and we would be helped. And that could be the case in whatever suffering that you're going through, is that God may be wanting to use your story to show the sufficiency of Jesus to someone else. That could be the case. That's clearly the case here. Mark reports this story so that we might be encouraged and that we might have that same kind of faith that same kind of desperate urgency to get to Jesus no matter what it takes. So she does, she comes in, she touches the hem of his robe, and then we get to verse 29. We see a daughter's restoration by faith in Jesus. Here's what it says, verse 29 through 34. So here's how the story continues. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, just healed immediately. And she felt it in her body, and she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out of him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And he said, his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. One commentator says this, 12 years of shame and frustration are resolved in a momentary touch by Jesus, immediately transformed by Jesus. Jesus asks this weird question, who touched my garments? What an odd question. You're in the middle of a crowd, and the disciples betray their, <laughs> Jesus, what are you talking about? We're in a crowd. Lots of people are crowding around you all the time. It's an odd question, and the disciples kind of mock Jesus. But this is more than just mere contact, and Jesus knows that. This is not just incidental. It's not like just anyone, when they bumped up into Jesus accidentally, all of a sudden had all of their afflictions, like, you know, all, their, all of a sudden their teeth were straightened, and they no longer had a runny nose, and, you know, maybe, uh, you know, any other infirmities that they might have are just gone. No, there's something different about this. There was a faith. There was, there was a touch by faith here that Jesus wants to highlight, wants to draw out, wants to teach, wants to reward. It's more than mere contact. This touch was different. This was a touch with faith, by faith. And I think we can learn that just proximity to Jesus doesn't do anything. It doesn't change us. It is proximity of Jesus with faith. So growing up in a Christian home, having a Bible, being baptized, just coming to church, just coming into contact with Jesus doesn't do anything if there isn't faith. That's right. There has to be faith in Jesus. 
That's right. And that's what Jesus is going to point out here. Like, of course, lots of people have touched you, Jesus. I don't, but there's something different here that he wants to highlight. He wants to show. He wants to reward this woman's faith. So we do have to come into contact with Jesus. How can they hear? How can they be saved unless they hear? How can we, we, can, we encounter Jesus now through the preaching of his word? Through his, so we have to come into contact with Jesus, but there has to be faith. Just mere proximity to Jesus and the things of Jesus. There's a monumental difference between bumping into Jesus casually and grabbing him desperately by faith. There's a big difference between those two. Yes. The difference is faith. It's faith. It's faith. And so this woman, realizing that, okay, he knows. He knows what happened. I was hoping to kind of just get in and get out. And he felt it. I felt it. He felt it, right? She felt in her body immediately that she was healed. He felt immediately that something had happened. And this woman is mortified. Can you imagine what she's thinking right now? She doesn't want any of the attention on her, right? She does not want to tell this story. She does not want to come before him and explain why she just made him unclean. Why just sort of like against his permission, just did this thing. And all the people that she bumped into on the way in, they would all be unclean. Like, oh, man, she does not want to explain. Just mortifying. This is her worst nightmare, to be exposed in front of everybody. But instead of running from, this, from the exposure, she runs to Jesus. She has a decision to make in that moment, right? Is she going to run and hide from this infirmity that she's had forever? Or is she going to kind of face it, come into the light, come to Jesus? And in her fear and in her shame, the safest place was to be right in front of Jesus. Just full confession, wide open. Tell him the whole truth. And she did, right there, in front of everybody, Jesus and everybody. She tells him everything, full confession of everything that she's done, everything that she, uh, everything that she has experienced, just tells him the whole truth. And even this underhanded ploy, which is marked by faith, but was really not the way you come to, you don't try to kind of sneak into Jesus. But nonetheless, he hears it in its tragedy and all its ugliness. Jesus listens with rapt attention. We just get this picture here of Jesus like almost maybe getting down on his knee, looking her right in the eyes, maybe taking her face in his hands. He said, tell me, tell me, tell me your story. And he just listens with rapt attention, eye contact maybe for her for the first time in years. She just listens patiently. Now, think about the, the father for a minute, right? We're going to come back to him in a minute. You have got to just be incredibly angry and frustrated, right? Your daughter is on her deathbed, and Jesus is talking to this woman. She'll still be there 30 minutes from now when you're done. Why are you taking time with her when my daughter literally is on her deathbed? And Jesus pauses, and this chronic woman, this chronic disease, this out, out clean, outcast, unclean woman has his full attention. Listens to her story, listens to her confession and her affliction, all of the tragedy and ugliness of her story, listens intently for as long as she wants to talk. And then he says these sweet words, daughter, daughter, you're mine, you're my, you're mine, my daughter. Just speaks so sweetly to her with both authority and tenderness. Daughter, in that, kind of saying, you're mine, I love you, precious little girl. You're mine. And he ever so gently corrects her. It's not my robe that made you well. Your faith in me, not the robe, made you well. One preacher says it this way. Her faith was uninformed and presumptuous. It's kind of superstitious. Like, if I could just kind of touch his robe, then that'll be, there'll be some sort of like magic that floats through it. A common superstition of the time. She was on, her faith was uninformed, presumptuous, superstitious, but it was real. It was real faith. 
and Christ honored her imperfect, imperfect faith. And he drew her near, he affirmed her, he encouraged her, listened to her story, and then gently corrected her, oh, your faith in me made you well, right? Your faith made you well. And then he sends her off. I think this is important for us to remember. Uh, I love good theology, and I think it's important that we teach doctrine clearly, we teach the gospel clearly, no, no caveats on that. But this interaction does tell us something, that Jesus is more pleased to receive and commend a very incomplete and questionable faith. She doesn't have to have it all figured out yet to have reached out to Jesus to touch him and to be rewarded and received by that. Okay, So that's not in any way to say that we should be soft on doctrine or unclear. But perhaps sometimes we create sort of a, people have to meet a certain threshold that we've established before they can be received. And this woman, she, she heard the stories about Jesus. She came to him in simple faith, and then he received her, and then instructed her. No, it was your faith in me. It was your faith in a person, not your touching of a magic rope. Right? Those are different things. And yet, he receives her and he nourishes her. I think that's important. He draws her close. He draws out her heart. He publicly affirms his affection for her. And then he encouragingly teaches her about the faith that she's expressed. Very sweet. I think that's an important thing maybe for us for, as parents to think about as well. That maybe Jesus is giving us a clue on how we nurture our kids. Or maybe new believers among us. Notice any seedlings of faith that you see in your kids or in a new believer or someone around you. And nurture those. Acknowledge them. Give thanks for them. Encourage them. Be very approachable. Be easy to tell the truth to. Be easy to confess to. Ask questions and listen intently to someone. Listen to their story. Hear what they have to say. See where they're at. And then lead with relationship before correction. Let me help you understand your faith a little bit more. Daughter. Starts with daughter and then informs her on what actually happened here. The thing that she didn't understand, she just knew that she had to get to Jesus and make some sort of effort towards him. And he was happy to meet her in that place and then draw her in. And teach everyone around, I think including this father, belief, faith. Faith. Faith is enough. Faith is enough here. Faith in Jesus is enough to get what you need from Jesus. Notice that she did not have to get herself ritually clean to approach Jesus. She did not have to come in conformity to the law. No, coming to Jesus first, and as she was, and in faith, he made her whole. He made her clean. He made her right as a gift by faith. No merit, no earning, just the faith that she had directed towards him. And then when he called her, she came, and she just, her whole life is before him. What is he going to do? Is he going to reject me? He goes, oh, daughter, you're mine. It's your faith that made you well. And I think that's important for us here in this moment to know that Jesus is passing right now by his word through this story, right through this story, by his word. In this sermon, Jesus is passing by. And are you desperate enough to reach out to him with whatever faith in Jesus that you have right now? Just bring whatever you have to him now. Abandon all the other physicians, all the ways that you're trying to medicate or deal with your identity issues, with your sin struggles, with your broken relationships, all of those things. Just whatever you've got, bring it to Jesus in full confession, in the light. Who cares what other people think at this point for her, right? She's just been made whole by Jesus. And so this is an opportunity for us to come to Jesus as the only one who can deal with our sin and our shame. This woman has lost everything. And in her desperation, she comes to Jesus and she finds the satisfaction she's looking for. And he says, go in peace. Live out your wholeness. Enjoy it. Display it. Share it. 
You're, you are whole. You are right. You are clean. Sweet story. And then we get to verse 35. Because there's still this other part of the story hanging out. we still got the first part of the sandwich, right? The whole point of this thing is that Jesus is supposed to be going and healing a little girl. And it's like he's totally forgotten. He's totally gotten distracted. He's way late for his appointment. He's just so in the moment, so caring for this woman right in front of him. And he misses the opportunity. But as we've already said, the daughter is risen, rising by the word of Jesus. So look at verse 35. When he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some, some who said, Your daughter is dead. It's not a, man, what, a, what tough news, right? Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? It's over. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. That sounds so dismissive. <laughs> That's what Jesus says. Hang, hang on. This is not the end of the story. Verse 37, and he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. And he put them all outside and took the, father, the child's father and mother and those who were with him, and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Again, what a nightmare for this father. He has to be devastated and angry that Jesus would get so distracted so quickly over something so urgent. Does he not care? The restoration of one daughter had resulted in the death of another. This is hardly unfair. If Jesus would be totally sued, he would be sued for medical malpractice if he was a doctor, right? To deal with the chronic issue that could weigh over the urgent life, life, life or death issue. These people come, they go, we missed it. We missed our chance. Jesus missed the chance. We might as well just leave him alone. There's nothing more the teacher can do. So there was enough faith to believe that Jesus could heal, but this is a different category. No one defeats death. Once death comes, that's over. Leave the teacher alone. This is, this is bigger than us. We missed it. We missed our opportunity. It's over. And Jesus, overhearing, some translations could, could put it as ignoring or dismissing. Don't listen to them. This is not over. This is not a problem. That's what Jesus is saying. And like this woman, just believe. Do not fear, only believe. It's the same word. When it says in verse 34, daughter, your faith has made you well, it's the same word. Do not fear, only believe. Pistis, the Greek word for faith. So he's rewarding her for faith, and then he's immediately coming around going, no, you need to have that kind of faith here. right? In your circumstance, in your situation, faith is still necessary. Not just with disease, but even when facing death. And in a, the, the ruler's house is already in funeral mode. right? They've already got people there. Um, According to like ancient sources, one of the minimums of a good Jewish family was that you would have you would hire at least two full flute players and at least one wailing woman. <laughs> there were people that this was their job. They would show up at funerals to make it feel sadder, and so they would play music. And there was actually wailing women that you could that would come and cry at funerals. And the bigger and more people that you had there wailing, the more important that person was. So th they have gotten like it's it's like the 
The funeral director's there. The flowers have been ordered. We've got a casket. Like, they're moving with funeral proceedings, and Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up, and he says something really strange, right? He says, she's not dead. She's just sleeping. And they laugh at him because they know what they're doing. They're professional funeral people. They know what death looks like. She's dead. Is Jesus lying here? No. I think what he's, he's speaking here, he's speaking here in a way to say, this is just like sleep. This is no more. I'm just going to go wake her up. It's going to be just like sleep. All right? So he's, he's speaking. Um, he's speaking in a, in, a, in a figurative sense here. Uh, they all understand that she's literally dead. And Jesus is, is trying to show that her death here that you've experienced is going to be no different than if she was taking a nap right now. For me, this is what Jesus is saying, for me, death is no harder to get someone up from than waking someone up for sleep. It's not easy to wake a 12-year-old up from sleep, but <laughs> he's going to be able to wake up this 12-year-old from death as if he was just waking her up from a nap. And so you guys are making a big fuss about nothing here because I'm just going to go get her up in just a minute. It's kind of the spirit of this here. So he's not being deceptive. He's speaking figuratively. And just like he was mocked when asked about who touched him, he's being mocked here to go, no one defeats death. We know what death looks like. This is death. And just like, no, I'm going to wake her up. It's going to be fine. You all can go home. I'll have her up in a minute. And you're all going to look really silly when she comes walking out here in a few minutes, right? That's kind of the spirit here. That's kind of, you're making a big fuss here. But you don't realize who's here and the power of his touch, the power of his words, okay? All right, so that's what Jesus is communicating here. So he takes just his three disciples, the parents, and then the girls. So there's, what, six? Am I doing the math right? Six plus the girl that are in there. I don't really know why. I couldn't really find an answer why he squinched that down. Maybe it's just a small room. That's all that can fit in there. He's going to tell them not to tell a bunch of people about this miracle. That's kind of impossible when someone gets raised from the dead and there's already a funeral in process. But Jesus does try to, he's still continuing to try to restrain his publicity until he teaches and accomplishes his mission. But he goes in, goes in that secret place there. He wants some people to witness it and not others. And he goes down to this little girl who's lying on the bed. And he says, Talitha, which means little girl. It's an Aramaic. I think this is evident in eyewitness testimony because Peter remembers like these words have been ringing in his head for decades of this experience of seeing Jesus bring this girl to life. And he's like, Talitha kumi, Talitha kumi, Talitha kumi. The word means little lamb. Just, it's like sweetheart. It's like saying sweetheart, kid, dear, little girl, just this term of endearment, Talitha Kumi, little girl, Kumi, Aramaic, arise. And what's interesting is like we saw that, we read about Elijah raising a little boy from, from the dead. We saw that he was doing some weird things like he kind of laying on top of the body and then crying out to God. He's doing these things back and forth and then God was pleased to grant at Elijah's request a resurrection. It's clear in that story that Elijah doesn't carry the power of resurrection in himself. He has to appeal to it. He has to do these certain incantations or whatever, and then God happens to raise the... But it's clearly God. Now here, Jesus, does he do any sort of incantations? Does he even have to ask the Father to do this? He just speaks to her, and she rises, which means Jesus himself has the authority to raise the dead. Elijah has to request that power. He doesn't have that in and of himself. There's a similar story in... Um, in 2 Kings, where his protege Elisha goes through all of this stuff in order to request God to raise a boy to life, and he does. Those are, the, those are the two kind of main ones in the Old Testament. That's because they don't possess that kind of authority in and of themselves. They don't have resurrection power in and of themselves, but Jesus does, and Jesus can just speak sweetly to this girl, and she comes to life. Jesus' words bring life. 
Just like in Genesis 1, when God speaks and the worlds become, Jesus has that same kind of ability to just speak and life comes into this dead girl's corpse. He doesn't have to appeal to any other authority. He speaks of his own authority and the life returns. Death releases its power. Death bows the knee and surrenders this girl back to Jesus. And like his attentiveness to the woman in her story, he's like, I bet she's hungry. Get her something to eat. Just as he was so tender with this woman to listen to her story, he's going, hey, coming back out of, a, out of death, yeah, that, that makes you hungry sometimes. Like, get her, get, her, get her a slice of pizza or something. Mm. The girl's hungry. So he's caring even for her physical needs. Like, you just see the tenderness of Jesus. You see his unmatched power to do what no doctors can do, can do what no one else can do to deliver this woman. And you see that he's able to just... Tell this girl to arise and death releases her and then she's brought back to life. And yet he has such tenderness, so much power under so much tender control. Right? It's just amazing. So this is twice now where Jesus has touched things that should have made him unclean. And instead of him becoming unclean, he has made them clean. Something dead has come to life. Something unclean has become clean. Something bleeding has been healed. Jesus fulfills and supersedes the cleanliness laws. He's the one who makes things right. So let's close by just asking and answering a, a few questions. So what do we learn from this story about our servant king? That's, just, that's what we're finding in Mark, is that Jesus is the servant king. This seems like an oxymoron. Usually you serve kings, but this is the king who serves. So what do we learn about our servant king? Well, we could look in chapters 1, 14 through 14. 34, and we see that there's a unit there, chapter 1 through chapter 4, of Jesus' exousia, the Greek word for authority. Jesus has the authority to teach about the kingdom, and people marvel at his authority. He has the authority to forgive sins in chapter 2, this exousia to forgive sins. He has this authority over demons in chapter 3, verse 15. So we see that being the theme of the initial part of the book. We've now seen in Mark 4, 35, through this story today, Jesus' power, which overlaps with his authority, but it's a, these, these are demonstrations of his power. The key word here would be dunamis. That's the word back in verse 30, when it says Jesus in himself, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from, out from him. So he has authority and he has power. Those overlap, but they're distinct. This word dunamis is the word we get dynamite from. This power, this explosive power of Jesus. He says power went out of him, dunamis went out of him to heal this woman. And so we've gotten this demonstration that Jesus has dunamis. He has power, supernatural power over nature by calming the storm in chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. He has explosive dunamis power over demons to expel a legion out of a man. He has explosive dunamis kind of power over disease to heal a woman almost passively who just touches him. To heal 12 years of devastation in, that we've just read. And he even has the power to banish death. Dunamis. Exousia. Dunamis. We have a king here. We have a creator king. And what we learn about our servant king is that the servant king, while he has all of this authority, he has all of this power, he is an approachable king. See that? He's approachable. All of this power is approachable. He's attentive. We see that with the woman. We see that with the girl. He's attentive to the needs of image bearers. He came to serve. Jesus is an interruptible king. He's not too busy for sinners. 
You don't have to, you don't have to get on his calendar of going, hey, maybe next Thursday I'll have 30 minutes for you. He's interruptible. He's unhurried. He just sits with this woman. This girl is dying. And that is not a problem for Jesus. He's in the moment. He's right there. He's unhurried. He's not in a rush. He's not stressing out, going, man, when am I going to get all this done? He's not in a hurry. And so we can come to him unhurried. We're never interrupting him. He's never irritated when we come to him. Tim Keller says it this way. Why would we want to hurry somebody this powerful and this loving who treats us this tenderly? Why would we be impatient with somebody who's like this? Jesus holds us by the hand and brings us through the great darkness. And that's super frustrating because we would love for Jesus to make things right faster. Right? To give us direction, to give us healing, to reconcile a relationship. We would love to him, for him to work fast. And God just is never in a hurry. He makes his people wait 40 years in the desert. He, before that, he makes them wait 400 years in slavery. God is just never in a hurry, right? And yet he always gets it right. And we always look back on, oh, he was right. He was right. And this man had to be so frustrated with Jesus. When will he get back from across the lake? Why is he stopping to mess with this woman? And Jesus is like, hey, I, you're not going to have any regrets. I promise you. When we get to the other side of the story, you will have no complaints. And when we get to the other side, and we're able to see what God sees, when we get to the new heavens and the new earth, we'll look back on how God orchestrated life and work things, and we're going to go, oh, he got it right. He was not late. He was not neglectful. None of that suffering was un, um, unnoticed or uncompensated, unrewarded, unfruitful. We see that Jesus is a compassionate king. He just cares very deeply in his soul for these people. Not just their condition, but like how they're doing. <laughs> he cares for this woman. He cares for this girl. We see that Jesus also in this creates, reveals, nurtures, and then rewards faith. Right? It's this testimony of Jesus and what he's done that they hear and they believe, hearing with faith, and then that faith causes them to act. It's not a passive faith. They put their faith into action. They reach out to Jesus, and then Jesus wants to draw that out. Everything he's doing in here is to create faith in people, to reveal that faith, and then to nurture that faith, and then reward that faith. But it's a faith that comes from him. Even the faith is a gift, not just the grace, like, like we read in Ephesians. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it's a gift. Even the faith is a gift. God gives the faith, he reveals the faith, he nurtures the faith, and then he rewards the faith. So that he gets the glory all the time. None of these, nobody in this story can take credit for what happened besides Jesus. Only he gets the glory for what happened here, right? Because even in them, he created the faith. It was testimony about him that they believed. And then they acted. And then that faith, Jesus goes, I want to reward that. Nurture that, reveal it. And I just want you to notice the special place Jesus has in his heart for desperate women. You see that? We get a real tender moment here. We're going to see that again and again when you read the Gospels. In those days, it's a much more male-dominated society. Women were a bit more disposable in those times. And yet we see Jesus flipping the society on its head. And he always has time for a desperate woman. Always. Who needs something from him. He always lingers and cares for his precious daughters. You'll just notice that again and again as you read the Gospels. That those that seem unclean, unhelpful disposable, he always has a special place in his heart for desperate women in particular. 
and so should we. What do we learn about the kingdom of God? Remember, back in Mark 1, the very first words out of Jesus are, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. So this story is revealing something about the kingdom that Jesus is bringing. Not just the kind of king he is, but the kind of kingdom that he is bringing into the world. Here we've seen some snapshots of the kingdom. The kingdom is a place, as you just think about where we've been so far in Mark, it's a place where the natural world works for humanity, not against humanity. Instead of a storm that threatens, it becomes clear. And we get a picture that the kingdom of God will be a place. When it comes in its fullness, will be a place where nature cooperates instead of works against humanity. We're going to see that the kingdom of God ultimately is a place where demonic evil is banished and people are put in their right minds. Remember the demoniac? The kingdom of God is a place where the king is worshipped by all kinds of people. Jews and Gentiles, every tongue, tribe, and nation. The kingdom of God is a place where bodies are healed and diseases are eliminated. That's right. The kingdom of God is a place where people are seen and heard face to face by their servant king. That's right. The kingdom of God is a place where there's no fear of death, but only faith. Do not fear, only believe. That's right. The kingdom of God is a place where death will be no more threatening than sleep, and death itself will be undone, defeated, and banished forever. We're getting snapshots of the kind of king Jesus is and the kind of kingdom he is bringing into the world and will bring to a fullness when he returns a second time. So here it is. The kingdom is at hand. It has come in Jesus. It remains both already and not yet. He hasn't healed everyone. But we're getting a snapshot of what it is to know Jesus as our king and what kind of kingdom he is bringing. The world is to look at us hear our stories, see our transformed lives, our love and our for one another, and conclude that those who encounter Jesus by faith, who touch him, can be made whole and new and alive. That's why we exist as a church. That's why God hasn't just taken us a home the moment we believed in him. Was that we're, we're to be a community. We're to be, uh, we're to be evidence <coughs> by our lives that when you encounter Jesus with faith, you can be changed. You can be whole. You can live in peace. So may Jesus say to each and every one of us, son or daughter, your faith has made you well. Do not fear, only believe. Little boy, little girl, arise from your sins. Live a new life. Come alive. And so what does that mean for us? Jesus deals with lost causes. These were four lost causes that we've just finished. The boat on the sea about to capsize, it's a lost cause, right? The demoniac, the man with a legion of demons, he's a lost cause. This woman... Destitute with a disease no one can cure, lost cause, dead girl, lost cause, lost cause, lost cause, lost cause. There hasn't been a human on the planet that has the power to fix these things. And yet it's not too late, it's not too far, it's not too hard for the servant king. And this is the situation we're all in. We're all in the same situation that these characters have been in. We are lost causes that cannot fix ourselves cannot heal ourselves, cannot deliver ourselves from nature, from evil, from disease, and from death. And we've just seen that there is one who, if we will come in faith, is able to deliver us. We're the lost cause that Jesus came for, and we're the ones that get to experience his exousias, his power, his dunamis, his authority, and his power, if by faith we will simply reach out to him. One pastor put it this way, this poor woman represents humanity, all of us. We are all ill. We have all spent all of our resources trying to make remedies that do not work. Christ comes to us from the cross. We need to touch him by faith. 
Do not fear that he will not respond to you. Do not fear that you are too ignorant. Do not fear that you are too selfish. Fear only one thing, that you might let him pass by without reaching out to him, without touching him in faith. Tim Keller says this, his healing of the sick woman was another foreshadowing of the cross. He lost power so that she could gain strength. But the one, the cross, but but one, but on the cross, he lost his life so that we could have life forever. The only way for Jesus to give us his power and life was through weakness and death. Through that desperate moment, that desperate urgency where Jesus is all I have and I reach out to him in faith, and that's enough. Because he has power and authority to forgive us and make us whole. Let's bow right now. And if that's you, you need to reach out to Jesus as he has passed by through his word. Consider what it is that you need and pray. Reach out to him by faith. Reach out through prayer to Jesus. I'll give you just a moment to do that and then I will pray for us. Oh God, I don't know the stories of everyone in this room. I know some of them. But I know that we all can find some point of connection in this story. Just a desperate urgency of a desire to try to find a remedy in our own strength and finding none. And Lord, we've heard of the testimonies of Jesus and may we be like this woman and this father who, yeah, they don't have it all figured out, but their, urgent, desperate, their desperate urgency has caused them to reach out in the hopes that maybe what's true about Jesus and what has been true about him for others could be true for them. And we thank you that Jesus responds favorably to even imperfect, uh, wobbly faith. So Lord, I pray that what, whatever we know of the gospel, whatever it is that we have within us, I pray that we would just reach out with all that we have and find you to be sufficient. And Lord, I pray that you would create, uh, reveal, nurture, and reward the faith that you have given us. Lord, I pray that you would give more faith today and that you would give and reward that faith God, that we would see not just some of the tangible things here, but a renewed, a, a real relationship with you. So I pray um, that, you would, uh, that you would work as you pass by us today. I pray that we would not miss our opportunity today uh, to reach out in faith, trusting that Jesus can make us whole. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.